Life Audio. Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard with Gospel App, gospel-app.com. So welcome to God's Love for the Unlovable, Part 2, The Ancient History of Love. Look, I almost changed the title after I saw the new Barbie movie yesterday, and I almost called this Barbie Love, and I think that I will do a separate show on the movie. But what I'm speaking about in this show today was the elephant in the room in the theater throughout the entire movie. Uh, So I want to talk about that, but you'll see it. If you've seen the movie, you'll understand what I'm talking about today. I think that this four-part series on the love of God for the unlovable could be groundbreaking for Christians today in our culture who are just not feeling loved by God very much. And that's most of us, because maybe they feel, we feel, you feel not enough, unworthy, unlovable to, to some degree or another. Look, I'm not saying that you aren't feeling the love of God at times. Think of it like a spectrum. This week, maybe you're a four out of ten. So here's my passion. If the Holy Spirit could move that to a six, right? Wouldn't that be noticeable? Or a seven? Wouldn't it change how you worship? Wouldn't it change your sense of value and identity? Wouldn't it change your emotional well-being, your relationships? You just wouldn't need relationships as much. You know what I mean? Well, that's our goal and passion, and it is doable. First, I got to start by cleaning up so much of the confusion around the love of God. So as we saw in God's love for the unlovable part one, there is a God-sourced love, not a human-sourced, not a you-sourced or a me-sourced that your brain is jonesing for. It pursues and it loves the unlovable, the unlovely, and the unloved. That's what it does. That's all of us. If we were only a little bit honest, it makes us, you feel like you are falling in love with Jesus again. And it makes you feel like he is falling in love with you again. And truth is, he's never stopped, but it's how we feel. It makes you more open and vulnerable and willing to be loved by others, no matter how badly love has traumatized you in the past. It's a chemical thing and a spiritual thing. You will become more receptive to love. You'll feel more lovely, more handsome, more lovable, and more loved. This is the good stuff. It makes you begin to love others more. I mean, particularly those who are unloved and societally unlovable. Back to the Barbie movie. It will even make you love you more. And remember from part one, it doesn't come to you by you straining uh, to choose to love harder, whatever, however that looks. No shame here, right? Not a gospel app. It doesn't come from you trying harder at all. It comes from you asking God for his power that alone is designed to make you begin to feel the love of Jesus for you and for others. It's so simple. And maybe that's why we've despised it so much. It's too simple. Well, that's not how we are typically made to understand love or have taught it. You know, we're so beat up. We're so abused and broken and used and leveraged relationally that we can't and often won't feel the love of Jesus that he purchased for us 2,000 years ago. It's a brain thing. Remember uh, part one? And please, I'm begging you, pass this link this show on to somebody you think needs to hear it. I'm sure the Holy Spirit has brought somebody to mind, somebody who feels unloved right now, unlovable, just do it, please. Or just post it to your social media. I mean, do you do Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, others? Just go for it. They will thank you. You might be surprised how many of your friends and colleagues and family are at the breaking point 
with loneliness and depression. And together we can make a massive dent in, in the direction of Christianity in our lifetime. I'm Dr. Bill Senior, and this is God's Love for the Unlovable, Part 2, History of Love. This would be a good chance to get a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. So in the first show, we looked at how the brain loves. Why is this important? This is how God created us. And of course, things are fragmented and a bit desperate post-fall. But still, the gospel is all about this amazing love and our experience of that love now a little, even with our fragmented inner working models, and ultimately falling in love with Jesus and experiencing him falling in love with you, right? I'm speaking humanly, is what your brain is jonesing for. It's why you go to worship. I mean, one of the big reasons you go to church, right, is to experience that touch from Jesus, to, to, for him to say, well done, good and faithful servant, Right? Uh, that that's what we need more. Um, but so often the loves around us are just counterfeit self-meds, you know, just saying. I think that we have become so historically confused by the topic of love. You've heard about the categories made popular by C.S. Lewis. I'm a big fan of Lewis. He says agape, which is God's love. We'll talk about that. Storge, compassion, phileo, friendship, and then eros. Yeah, you know, that's the, the unspeakable, the unmentionable. But is that right? Uh, I'm going to show in the next show that the categories are very oversimplified and very confusing in so many ways, not exactly biblical. In fact, they're really more compatible to how the ancient Romans and Greeks envisioned love versus Paul. Isn't that shocking? I hope I can convince you of that. Listen to the amazing words Paul uses to describe the unique love that Jesus offers to the unlovable, uh, you know, back in the Roman Empire when he was speaking, but also today. Here's what he says. For I'm convinced, this is Romans 8, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 8, 38 and 39. Whoa, man, power, love and power, love and power of God. Whew. The ancient Romans didn't have that concept of love, neither do today's Buddhist or any other religion that I know of, uh, and much of Christianity. It's dynamic, it's wonderful, it's frightening, it's, it's out of our control, right? And that's troubling to most Americans, particularly God's love is very noticeable, 
when you get it, when you feel it, when you experience it. It's already yours, Christian. So my question, Christian, is this. Is that what we mean by love? On our day-to-day experience, is that what we're talking about? I mean, no judgment. Our confusion in this started such a long time ago, and I want to go back before the sexual revolution of the 60s, the Victorian age, the Puritans, and even the predominantly romantic notions of love that were kind of created during the Middle Ages. I want to go back to the intelligentsia of ancient Rome and Greece. So time frame, think around the time of Christ. This was... This view of love that I'm going to be talking about was so deeply rooted. It was universal in the whole entire Roman Empire, so much so that Paul had to really choose his words to speak on this on his mission trips because uh, he was speaking a different kind of love. I mean, how do you say that? How do you speak into something that was just rock solid? Well, and again, I think that's Paul's unique gifting. <laughs> he, he was that, uh, that bull in a china cabinet, right? And he, he was called by God to plow very, very hard, tricky ground. Uh, so what, what did that love look like in the Roman Empire? Two things. First, man, the Romans were terrified of love. And in fact, the first century emperor, Augustus, tried to legislate it. And it didn't work very well then. We will look at it in the next show. God's love for the unlovable, silencing eros. But second, and this is what we're going to talk about in this show, the Romans believed that love is innately a function of the object. Love is a function of the object. Now, don't let your eyes gloss over because it sounds pretty philosophical. I'm going to unpack it, and hopefully it's going to be a very understandable. And in the end, we're going to experience Jesus' love so much more by the end of the show. Isn't that a high bar? That's the, that's the goal. So buckle up. What do I mean love is a function of the object? So the very influential 4th century BCE philosopher Plato, you've probably heard of him, he believed that separate from the visible realm that we can see and touch, there is an intelligible world of forms that all of us know subconsciously. They govern our choices more than we know. And he said that there is a universal form of beauty that whether you know it or not, it shapes how you appreciate and respond to any object. I mean, can you just hear the Barbie movie if you haven't seen it? And the idea is that you can't help it. You can't, you can't not love this perfect beauty. It's how you're wired. So the more that any object in our world, a work of art, a person aligns with that in eternal form of beauty, think Barbie, the more you will respond to it as beautiful, meaning you're going to love it or them. So the more that a person's beauty or handsomeness is in sync with this invisible template of beauty that's hard programmed into our brains, the more we're going to love them. Love, loveliness, lovability, it's ultimately a subconscious function of how beautiful that person or object is. So to be clear, philosophically, said Plato, and by the way, the Roman Empire bought this hook, line, and sinker. And so have we, by the way. There is a higher universal beauty that makes reasonable people, you and me, love it. You can't help it. And also, there is a universal ugly, and it does not generate love. Matter of fact, you, your brain can't love it. So work with me, right? This is such bad news if you're in a culture and have attributes that are defined as less than beautiful. I mean, it's too bad. What you have to do is you have to work really hard constantly to fix your uglies, your stigma. Or you're just stuck in loneliness and shame and you don't have a shot at being loved. You're unlovable. That's what it feels like. 
And thank God that is not what his love's about. But it is in the air we breathe. Even today, it's like gravity. It's everywhere. Did you know that the beauty industry is now bigger than ever? It's $100 billion a year of revenue worldwide. $100 billion. I mean, that makes it larger than the entire GDP of 130 countries. No judgment. I buy product. I'm just setting the context. We universally, unquestionably accept, live our lives, that the more beautiful and handsome and smart and funny and successful what sex you are, educated you are, the more lovable you are, the more worthy you are of being an object that others are going to appreciate, they're going to love, they're going to be drawn towards, they will treat you better, they'll appreciate you more, right? So our love, like the Romans, seems to be a function of the loveliness of the object. It's everywhere. Look, uh, think media. Have you ever seen My Fair Lady? Julia Robertson, Pretty Woman, Dear Evan Hansen, the Broadway play, Beauty and the Beast, The Photograph, 2020, Marry Me, 2022, Goodwill Hunting, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, 2023. In fact, <laughs> to one degree or another, every rom-com that has ever been created or every Disney film that has ever been produced. Like I said, I just saw the Barbie movie, and this worldview was riddled throughout the whole film. It's not really a moral. It's kind of the essence is imperfect Barbies have worth, too. That's the message in Barbie land. And the audience cheered, but then we all had to walk out into the real world and subconsciously back to worrying about competing with more perfect Barbies and Kens. You're, and they all lived happily ever after depends upon it. Or does it? See, none of those movies, none of those rom-coms reflect the incarnational love of Jesus. Rather, they're more Roman or more platonic. Just saying, doesn't that blow your head? It's not all your fault. It's part of our culture. We're saying something different than our culture. Maybe this is a good time after that mic drop moment to get a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back after a short break. So one of the most enduring formulas for this all-too-prevalent view of love is found in Ovid's Pygmalion. Pygmalion was a sculptor who created a statue of a woman that was so perfect he couldn't help but to fall in love with her, with it. <laughs> Pick a pronoun. He named her Galatea, couldn't stop falling in love with it, her. It's awkward. And she only had one imperfection, one kind of obvious stigma. She was a piece of rock. So he prayed to Aphrodite, the goddess, to bring him a woman as beautiful as Galatea. Well, Aphrodite, being the compassionate goddess, was so moved by his request that she magically brings Galatea to life. And once Galatea was flesh and blood, Pygmalion and she were married and, of course, lived happily ever after. There it is. So in this typical Pygmalion formula, there is the subject, you know, Pygmalion, who stands ready to love, and then there's an object, a tragic object, Galatea, who at first is imperfect, and so to one degree or another, can't be loved, won't be loved, she's unloved. And that's the plot that drives the storyline. The object needs to somehow remove their uglies, their stigma, or have them removed by a goddess before they can hope to be loved. Well, that stinks. That, that message stinks for those of us who are imperfect. 
I'm one of those. Those of us who are not beautiful enough, who have scars, the wrong skin color, the, the wrong body type, the wrong personality, this or that disability or mental issue. Uh, those of us who age. I mean, you tell me, are you ever afraid that your partner might find out your dark secrets and, and it become a stigma and ha- cause, cause him or her to pull back? Or what about when you get older or put weight on or wrinkles and become less perfect than the younger Barbie models? And for many of you, that's, you've already experienced that. That's exactly what happened, right? So what do you do? You have to continually be anxious and afraid of that or lean into removing your per- imperfections, your stigmas. And then if, you, if and when you do, then you hope that you have a better chance of living happily ever after until your beauty changes again. That's a lot of stress. You know, I'm dating myself, but do you remember the ABC Network smash hit Extreme Makeover? Only 55 episodes, 2002 to 2007. Here's what happened. Ordinary, often unattractive people, I'm just saying, were transformed into beautiful people through advanced medical procedures and wardrobe, makeup consultation. And the testimonies of the participants were that they have been living subhuman lives because they were not attractive, too tall, too busty, too fat, bad teeth, big noses, right? And the show's website described its Pygmalion power this way. This magic is conjured through the skills of an extreme team, including the nation's top plastic surgeons, eye surgeons, cosmetic dentists, along with a talented team of hair and makeup artists, stylists, and personal trainers, led by an on-camera makeover expert. (laughs) Right? Oh, my gosh. Pygmalion. It's actually a formula. Let me just quickly go through this. At the heart of the ancient Pygmalion formula, there's three key assumptions. First, all love and honor is conditional. Its object must be worthy enough of love and honor, whatever enough is, measured by culturally specific guidelines, because every culture is different. Every cultural view of beauty, status, name, family, purity, talent, character, class, etc. Second, The Pygmalion myth is that there is a power, love, honor, miracle, magic, affirmation, exercise, diet, exposure, counseling, that can change an unworthy object into an object worthy of love. And then by implication, three, once the object is transformed and the stigma is removed, the person will finally be loved and lovable and live happily ever after. Tell me that's not what we believe. And this is the storyline, as I said, for almost every rom-com on the planet. In the rom-coms, the protagonist must come to see the hidden beauty in the co-star. He or she is attractive when you take their glasses off, you let their hair down, or the person gets some confidence and makeover. And, and, And it just makes sense to the audience that the hero has got to fall in love with him now, right? Because it's the formula. Because now they're beautiful, they're lovable, and love is a function of this new, revealed, inherent beauty in the formerly unbeautiful, unlovable object. And we all go, oh, yeah, I I want that too. Are you following me? This love, (laughs) tragically, permeates the Church of Jesus Christ. It has to. In our brain, way deeply rooted in the shadows of our Subconsciousness is the truth that God only really loves the faithful enough, the righteous enough, the pure enough. The pews are riddled with honestly shamed, not enough people who feel ugly to God, like disappointments, unworthy of his love. 
So back to Paul in the first century Roman Empire, right? He's, he, he plunges into all of this Pygmalion formula, and you can almost hear the wheels inside of his head grinding away as he tries to differentiate the gospel of the love of God, Christ, for the unlovable objects from the Romans, you know, uh, God's love for the lovable to the Romans and Greeks of ancient Corinth. Here's 1 Corinthians 1, 17, right in the middle of Greece. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So gospel, think the good news that Jesus specifically loves the unworthy, the unlovable, the unclean, the impure, the unlovely, as they are. No extreme makeover team required. Continue, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. Human wisdom in the Roman Empire is that only the beautiful, the successful, the pure will be loved by the gods, but then Jesus. So back to Paul. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligence I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? I wonder if he was thinking of Plato. Has not God made the foolishness the wisdom of the world? So he's saying, I get it. This new Jesus love is crazy. It's, it seems foolish, and yet it is what it is. Jesus loves the unlovable, the unloved, the unlovely, the people with stigma, with impurities, who've, me- who've messed up, failures. Plato was wrong. The love that undergirded the entire Roman Empire is dehumanizing. Paul again, brothers and sisters, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the uglies. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the stigmas. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things. There we are, the the non-beautiful and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. Again, you're beginning to get it, right? You were all unlovable and and not beautiful and loved when Jesus found you and embraced you and loved you. None of us should have received this love of God. We didn't earn it. His standards are way high. None of us are beautiful enough, worthy enough. But look, says Paul, you unlovables experience the love of God. That your culture taught you since infancy that only the perfectly beautiful and successful should experience. That's the love of Christ. It's so interesting, so life-changing to the regular Corinthians who were looking for love in all the wrong places, right? It's, It's the same today. Paul again, it's because of him that you are in Christ who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Listen, the gospel exploded in Corinth because there were so many people who felt like they didn't measure up to the gods. And then here was a God who pursues them with his love. It should explode here, too, in the United States, because it's so different than everything I saw in the Barbie movie. If we were only clearer of God's love and we told it, if we experienced it and then we told it in its pure form, clear the differences. So what earned the love of God for unlovables? It wasn't a what, it was a who, Jesus. He did it himself. 
All right, let me throw out some theology from John Barclay. I love this. It unpacks this Jesus movement towards unworthies like me, his love. Listen, he calls it the gift of Christ, but you could say the love of Christ. But here it is. The gift of Christ was the definitive act of divine grace and was an incongruous gift, meaning it didn't make any sense. Given without regard to worth, because this gift did not fit with previous criteria of value, the Christ event has recalibrated all systems of worth That would include Plato's and the Pygmalion formula, including the righteousness defined by the law. Whereas good gifts were and still are normally thought to be distributed best to fitting or worthy recipients, think Barbie, Paul took the Christ gift, the ultimate gift of God to the world, to be given without regard to worth. And in the absence of worth, an unconditioned or incongruous gift that did not match the worth of its recipients but, listen, but created it. My beauty comes from being loved by Jesus. So did the Roman leadership get it? Just how dangerous this love of Jesus was to the entire empire, to the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. I mean, what would happen to the Roman societal structure if slaves, who made up, by some estimates, 40% of the population of Rome, actually began to feel this incongruous love of of Christ, to begin to feel like objects of honor, worth, dignity, value for the first time in their lives. What do you think they're going to do? Or the women, particularly the lower and middle class women who apparently, we think, flocked to Paul's message. Why? Because this was good news. And they began to experience something that maybe they never felt before. In the eyes of Jesus, I'm lovable. I'm lovely, and in his gaze, I am loved as I am. Beautiful or not. Now, that's dangerous. Then and today, I think our culture is clamoring for it, but we're not sure what the question is. So, what do you think? Has your head exploded? Let me know, bill at gospel-app.com. And here is the message that I think is going to confound and confuse our age and tear down so many walls, change so many people's lives, including we Christians who've kind of stopped hearing the music. God loves the unlovable. And that's all there is. But he does. So briefly, I want to quickly talk about the real Jesus love. Many theologians today do an unfortunate pendulum swing to the opposite side of the spectrum. What I mean by this is instead of God's love being a function of the object, they suppose wrongly that God's love is a function of the subject. I mean, simply put, they say, well, here's what it must be then. God is so innately love, he has to love everybody because that's what he does. He just loves. It doesn't matter if the object is ugly or beautiful or worthy or not. He just loves. Well, I'm not going to get into this very deeply, but on the face of it, it doesn't track scriptures. No matter what you think hell is or what hell is all about, it appears that there is one. And eventually, tragically, there will be many who end up there. If God loved everybody equally, because that's his DNA, loves to function the subject, then what, what do you say about hell? And also, if God already loved everyone equally, what's the point of the cross? I mean, I get it. This is a controversial topic, and well-meaning Christians can disagree adamantly about this, and and that's okay. Talk to me, Bill, at gospel-app.com. But for now, I'm going to suggest another way of looking at it that, in my opinion, better reflects the Bible. I think Plato got one thing right. 
Love by its nature is a function of the object's lovability, meaning love is perfectly a function of the object. God's love, then, is the absolute pinnacle of that love, since he's perfect and necessarily a perfectionist. His love is only for the perfectly lovable, the perfectly beautiful, the perfectly worthy, the perfectly 100% righteous. The bar to receive God's love, to earn it, is perfect lovability. The hard stuff, but that's the biblical record with one not-so-subtle nuance, Okay. But here's the record. God tells Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. Genesis 17.1. Pretty clear. Jesus says, be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Pretty clear. That's Matthew 5.48. And for you Old Testament scholars, it's laid out in great detail in Deuteronomy 28. You mess up once, just once, and what you earn is a boatload of curses. So I'm going to be honest. <laughs> True confession. I've never pulled off perfection. <laughs> Captain Obvious, right? Not in my pre-Jesus days or post-Jesus days. But here's the key. Jesus did. There was nothing that Jesus did or did not do or said or didn't say that would earn him a single curse according to Deuteronomy 28. He alone, humanly speaking, again, legally earned all of the blessings that God promised Israel in Deuteronomy 28 and included in those blessings, among those blessings, is all the love in the universe. For you. If you're a spirit-filled Jesus follower, you shockingly get them all, all the benefits of what Jesus did and what he earned for you 2,000 years ago. Right? It's stunning. So God loves you now, according to the Pygmalion formula. He has to love you. Again, that's speaking very humanly. God loves you as you are, as if you were the pinnacle of human perfection, Plato's perfect form of beauty. And you definitely aren't. I mean, no judgment, just saying, nothing personal. That's the dangerous and wonderful substitutionary love that Paul offered the shocked Greeks and Romans. No wonder the world was turned on its head. No wonder the Roman leadership began to try to silence Christianity. And in the next show, I'm going to tell you what the Romans were so terrified of, one type of love in particular. But it didn't take very long for the Roman leaders during the time of Paul and afterwards to become even more terrified over Jesus' love. It was far more powerful than the one they were afraid of. Interested? So how does one experience that love more? And that's the right question. How? It's simple. Uh, here's a tool that has been effective for so many Christians. Say the simple uncluttered gospel twice a day for 45 days. Say it aloud. Say it word for word because there's actual science involved. But for now, just sit back and listen to it as I say it. All good. All right. Here it is. Jesus follower, strictly because of what Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago, God actually loves you. He loves you with all of his heart, as much as the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. He can't love you any more or any less than he does right now. You can't do any more, right? He loves you as you are, not as you should be or could be. You can't add to this love or take away from it. No, I get it. It often feels like you've messed it up or need to do something so that God would like you better. It's the Pygmalion formula. Not so. How do you experience it more now? Simple. Good news. There is something that you can do and are invited to do. You can take daily baby steps to ask the spirit inside of you to make you know, experience, and feel 
just how much God loves you right now. Boy, that would change things, right? Just ask. Ask again later today. Ask tomorrow. Make it a spiritual habit. So do you hear that? You don't have to lose weight to earn God's blessings or go to church or tithe or, or spend time in the nursery. All those things are good. Do them if God directs, but you don't have to to be loved by God. You experience the love of Christ, and then you're motivated to do those things, right? Well, that's definitely not the message of modern rom-coms or the Barbie movie. All right, so as you heard the simple and colored gospel, what struck you, what moved you, what jumped off the page, what bothered you, what shamed you, what made you feel happiness? Did you hear the music again? Did you feel a little bit of the love of Christ for you? If so, dance a little bit. All right, uh, we'll see you in the next show. In the meantime, keep saying the simple and colored gospel aloud twice a day, 45 days. You can get packages, packets of the simple and cluttered gospel bookmarks from either gospel-app.com or gospelrant.com. Inexpensive. So buy a bunch. Hand them out to family and friends and church and Bible studies, visitors who come to your church. Help us get the word out about this new series, God's Love for the Unlovable. I think people will thank you. I have a new book related to all of this about the overlooked and underappreciated women in the Old Testament. Look, their voices should be heard. It should be published soon. If you want to know when it's going to be published, drop me an email, bill at gospel-app.com. Also, let me know what you think about this show. I would really appreciate it. Well, in the next Gospel Rant podcast, we're going to dig into what it was about love that terrified Roman intelligentsia. And if you benefited from this podcast, please uh, give us a review wherever you listen to podcasts or follow the program. We thank you ahead of time. We'll see you in the next Gospel Rant podcast. Take heart, child of God. I'm Dr. Lauren DeVille, a practicing naturopathic physician in Tucson, Arizona. In my podcast, Christian Natural Health, my guests and I discuss topics ranging from nutrition, sleep, hormone balancing, and exercise to specific health concerns like hair loss, anxiety, and hypothyroidism. I'll also interweave biblical principles as they apply throughout the podcast because true health is body, mind, and spirit. Listen to Christian Natural Health for free at lifeaudio.com or on your favorite podcast platform.